Yeah, all right. Over the course of this year, we're going to be coming up with a new vision statement. I know of only two people who get excited about church vision statements. One of them is me, the other is Jerry Loro. So you're in at least one set of good hands. The point of doing a vision statement is to help us think about how we work in the world, what it is we're trying to actually accomplish. Because if you don't have a vision, if you don't have something that captivates you, you're going to stop doing mission as soon as things get difficult. So today's reading from the book of Acts is all about vision. It's about a vision that St. Paul receives in which an unnamed man tells him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And apparently the vision was pretty captivating because Luke says that Paul got up and went to Macedonia immediately. But Luke doesn't tell us much of anything about the vision itself. Who is this man? Why does he need help? What is happening in Macedonia? What Paul does offer us is a step-by-step vision of his journey. We set sail from Troas to Samothraca, the next day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. So why does St. Luke give us this step-by-step travelogue that Paul went on? Why doesn't Luke just say, Paul got up and went to Philippi? Well, Luke wants us to know that this was not a simple journey. If you look at this on a map, the journey that Luke describes is across the Aegean Sea, which means Paul is leaving Asia and going to Europe. So for Paul and the church, this is uncharted territory. And Luke tells us that Philippi is a Roman colony to remind us they may not be receptive to Paul's preaching. And sure enough, Paul will end up being imprisoned in Philippi. But when he receives the vision from the man saying, come to Macedonia and help us, Paul gets up and goes. Now, this could be a straightforward, positive story about mission, but it has a very complicated history within the church. For centuries, Paul's vision of the Macedonian man has been used by Christians as a license to do pretty much whatever they wanted under the guise of mission. In 1629, The founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony chartered their new colony with a seal showing a Native American lowering his arrows in a sign of goodwill with a word bubble that said, come and help us. About a hundred years later, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which was a missionary group in the Cotton Belt that seemed to think the problem with slavery was the slaves weren't Episcopalian, adopted come and help us as its motto. And even about a hundred years ago, the cover of Missionary Review of the World magazine featured an Asian toddler reaching out her arms proclaiming, come over into Asia and help us. Which is kind of funny because the whole story is about the gospel coming to the West from Asia. Instead of being motivated by love, Christians slid into a kind of patronizing charity. And eventually it just became outright pity. These people can't help themselves, and so we have to go save them. And when the people they were ostensibly helping said, you know, we never asked for your help, those missionaries just put the Macedonian man's words in their mouth, come and help us. And when you read the histories of those missionaries who fell into that trap, there's one thing they always seem to have in common. Their vision for mission looked an awful lot like their own desires. 
They thought they were the ones in control. They viewed themselves as the active saviors in the story and the people they served as passive recipients. To use Kipling's phrase, they took up the Christian man's burden. And when you view the world that way, when you think that you were the one bringing God to these godless people, you create a worldview in which you can never be wrong, you can never be surprised, and you never see other people as anything other than recipients of your charity. You know the plan, and anything that doesn't fit into that plan can be rationalized away. These people need my help, and when they say they don't need my help, that's exactly the kind of thing a person who does need my help would tell you. And maybe St. Paul even harbored some of those visions of glory. But when they get to Philippi, things don't go according to plan at all. Luke says they were in the city for some days and nothing happened, which had to be a little disconcerting. They have hustled from Asia to Europe, undertaken this dangerous journey, and then they get to the city and what happens? Nothing. But on the Sabbath, they decide to go to the synagogue thinking maybe this Macedonian man will be there. And instead they end up meeting a group of women on the beach, which is where we meet Lydia. So remember, Paul and his companions are looking for a man from Macedonia who needs help. And who did they end up talking to? A woman named Lydia who sells purple cloth. Dealing purple cloth means that she is someone who's wealthy, certainly wealthier than Paul. She doesn't need his help. And in case you don't know where Thyatira is, and I did not on Monday morning, it is not in Macedonia. It's actually back in Asia where Paul came from. So Paul is planning on meeting a man from Macedonia in dire straits, and instead he meets a woman from out of town who is loaded. Now many of us have a vision of what God is calling us to. Maybe not a vision per se, but a sense, an inkling, a feeling. We have visions about how we want our relationships to work, we have visions about the kind of church we're trying to be. We have visions about how our community should work. And so we plan. We make plans together at the annual meeting every year. We have a council that plans months and even years in advance. We have a synod with plans about what the synod is going to look like in 10 or 20 years. That planning is good, it's necessary, it's important. But sometimes that planning can give us the illusion that we are the ones who are in control. As if, like those Massachusetts colonists 400 years ago, we are the ones bringing God into the world. As if God only shows up where it's in our strategic plan. As if our vision statement sets the bounds of what God can do. We run by Lydia on the beach and say, no time for you, looking for a man from Macedonia. If Paul thought he was going to have some experience of bringing God into Macedonia, it couldn't have lasted for very long. Because when he run, runs into Lydia, the whole power structure of his mission is upended. Lydia ends up becoming the one who helps them. Luke says that when Lydia invited them into her home, she prevailed upon them. Prevailed is kind of an awkward word to use in that translation, but here's why they chose it because it's only used one other time in Luke's writings, which is at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, which is the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and they invite Jesus to come in and have a meal with them, and they insist on it. They prevail on Jesus. 
And around that table, something new happens. The risen Jesus is revealed in the breaking of the bread. So when Lydia insists that Paul and his companions come and eat with her household, you can hear an echo of that story. This is not just about food. This is not just about money. It's about the relationship in the presence of Christ that emerges in the world in a completely unexpected way. Paul goes to Macedonia thinking he is going to be the generous giver, and instead the Lord opens Lydia's heart and Paul is invited to receive. So Paul is not simply doling out God's grace to a group of people who depend on him. Being led by the Spirit means being opened up to receiving other people's gifts. It doesn't just make us generous or hospitable. It makes us able to receive other people's hospitality. That's the part of the vision that we usually miss. We're great at having a vision of helping other people and giving them resources and providing them necessities. We're often not as good at acknowledging that they have something to give us. We have a vision of shaping life in our community, but we often forget that our community shapes us right back. And that should change the way we think about mission. Instead of being anxious over whether we are reaching the right people, whatever that means, it means that we are called to engage with everyone. When Paul talks to a woman who is not part of his plan, God still opens her heart. Instead of being afraid that the success of God's mission depends on every tiny decision we make, we can get to go find where God is already at work in the world. We never bring God anywhere. We're always being led. And instead of thinking that we are the dispensers of God's grace, we see that we receive as much from the people we serve as they receive from us. So when we're sent in mission, we always expect to be delightfully surprised by the gifts of others. And hopefully this makes clear why the word vision is so profound. Because this change in how we think about mission doesn't just change how we work in the world. It actually changes how we see the world. Not as something full of traps and pitfalls and burdens, but as the latent gifts of God's grace waiting to be called forth for the life of the world. So when we go forth at the end of worship, we go in peace, we go in expectation, we go in joy, but most of all, we go in hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Invite the assembly to stand as we 